Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. My welcome. This is Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Tuesday, the 4th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham, TNR Koto. Three times a week, usually on a Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we'll bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about this general election New Zealand is embarking on, and then we'll slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 45 days to go until election day. So last Thursday, we put out a lovingly produced three-minute trailer which set out our intentions for this podcast. And now today, it's happening for real, the first episode of the Tick Tick podcast. I guess you can think of it as being like we took the chassis of the Coronavirus NZ podcast, if you're familiar with that, and we've added some shiny new bodywork, rebored the engine, spray-painted it a new colour, put a new tape in the car stereo, added a triple-flanged manifold to the doohickey. You don't know anything about cars, do you, Eugene? Not a bunch, but the point is that the podcast is still you and me talking quite a lot, plus interesting and knowledgeable guests. But this time, instead of viruses and vaccines, we're mostly talking about politics and the forthcoming election. Yeah, and every few episodes, we'll hand our mics over to a couple of stuff's fearsome political journos, Luke Belpass and Andrea Vance, who will be sitting down for interviews with party leaders. So, the election race has started, there are billboards all over the place, but this week we're still in a funny sort of in-between phase. Parliament has a few days to go before it rises, which isn't some sort of levitation trick. It just means that all the MPs are done with shouting at each other in a big room full of leather seats. Those final days could get quite shouty though, because the government is going to be rushing through legislation to allow them to charge some people for hotel quarantine. And then next Wednesday, Parliament is dissolved, which no, doesn't involve putting the beehive into a giant fat of acid. It just means the government really is done with making new laws for the next wee while. Later on the show, we'll be interviewing Associate Professor Grant Duncan from Massey University about what it is that's exercising voters' minds in the lead up to the election and how political leanings influence your view on the world. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? Jacinda Ardern's final post-cabinet press conference for this parliamentary term was, like everything in the last few months, dominated by coronavirus. She ran out a new catchphrase she'll be hoping will catch on. Say yes to the test. Seriously, say yes to the test. Seriously. This inspirational phrase is a reaction to the fact that a quarter of people referred by their GP for a COVID-19 test have refused to get one. Ardern also confirmed that a trans-Tasman bubble was on ice because the outbreak in Melbourne is still getting worse. And pretty much with that, she was done, hoping that voters will gift her another three years of standing in front of the press gallery each Monday. National has a bit of an untidy situation in the high-profile Auckland Central seat. It's currently held by National's Nikki Kay, but she's not standing again. And in their last-minute rush for a replacement, they've broken their own procedural rules, which is complicated and kind of confusing and, well, slightly boring, really. So what it means is that they won't have identified their candidate for the seat till after the first public candidate's meeting. The procedure is boring, but the whole schmozzle is interesting because Auckland Central is the seat Labour's Helen White is trying to win back from National, and the Greens' Chloe Swarbrick is also running a strong campaign. So it's going to be a seat to watch on election night. And finally, this. Two new cases of COVID in managed isolation were announced on Monday afternoon, which took New Zealand's active case number to 27. So, okay... This isn't exactly politics, but let's be honest, if the rate of New Zealand's community transmission of COVID-19 changes from its current figure of zero between now and the election, 
you can be sure candidates will be talking about that. I've been thinking. So this is the very first episode of Tic Tac. Stuff's 2020 election podcast. And I once read a Hallmark greeting card which said that to understand where you're going, first you need to know where you've been. Lots of wisdom in greeting cards. Yeah, so this feels like the right time for us to do a bit of a retrospective catch-up thing, a bit of a New Zealand politics history lesson, I guess. Okay, shoot. Well, first, there was the Big Bang. That was roughly 13.8 billion years ago, and then about 4 billion years ago, the solar system got going, including this watery, lifeless planet that hadn't yet been called Earth. And, um, and then on, after that, on. Adam, you realise we've only got half an hour for the entire podcast, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Bear with me. I've, I've already covered 8 billion years. But, okay, jumping forward a bit. With the formation of water, the scene was set for the arrival of life on Earth. First it was just single-cell organisms and a bit of photosynthesis, but then it got fancier with multicellular things. Sex was invented around 1.5 billion BC, and then there was a thing called the Cambrian Explosion, and eventually... There were dinosaurs and a few small mammals. The clock's ticking, Adam. Dinosaurs are cool, but they're not central to the history of our representative democracy. Good point. And I'm not going to make a very weak joke about long-serving MPs here. Good. Anyway, so... Yeah, there were... Dinosaurs and fish and mammals, including eventually brainy ones like Ardipithecus and Australopithecus and Homo habilis. Then there was Homo erectus. After that, Homo heidelbergensis. Uh, there's some Neanderthals in there somewhere. And then us, Homo sapiens. Now, after that, there's the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, a bunch of antiquities of different kinds, and a few ages of missed out. And eventually, you hit... Ancient Greece, where the Athenians had a crack in a voting system around 600 BC. Great. Only, what is it, 2,620 years to go? Getting there. There was a pile more Athenian democracy that went on. A guy called Aristotle wrote a bestseller called Politics. Some Romans borrowed the Greek democratic ideals and kept them going for a bit. Where's that fast forward button again? There's the Etruscan city-states and Appius Claudius and Julius Caesar. Not much of a democrat, to be fair. Then lots and lots of centuries of other historical incident. And then in 1840 in New Zealand, there was the Treaty of Waitangi. Now we're getting there. Voting rights first hit New Zealand in 1852, but they were really selective and classist. Uh, Maori men all got the vote in 1867. Women got the vote in 1893. There are loads of elections, loads of prime ministers, uh, you know, off the top of my head. There was Sewell, Fox, Stafford, Domit, Whitaker, Weld, Waterhouse, Vogel, Pollen, Atkinson, Gray, Hall, Stout, Balance, Seddon, Hall, Jones, Ward, McKenzie, Massey, Bell, Coates, Ford, Savage, Fraser, Holland, Nash, Holyoke, Marshall, Kirk, Rowling, Muldoon, Lummy, Palmer, Moore. Bolger. First MMP Prime Minister, Nationals Jim Bolger. Shipley. Quick shout out to New Zealand's first female Prime Minister, Jenny Shipley. Clark. Hey Helen, that made two women in a row. John Key. Bill English and, oh, 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 I know this next one, Jacinda Ardern. Indeed. In October 2017, Jacinda Ardern, MP for Mount Albert and leader of the Labour Party, uses three rolls of heavy-duty gaffer tape to form a happy MMP coalition government made up of Labour, New Zealand First and the Greens. And National and ACT go into opposition. Five parties in all. What about Jamie Lee Ross? Oh, okay. And one independent MP who used to be an ACT. Okay, so you've covered the first 12.8 billion years. Just three to go. 2018 and 2019 were, I guess you could say, pretty eventful in New Zealand politics. The government has a go at getting lots of new houses built and don't really get there. There's some climate change stuff around blocking oil exploration. The Prime Minister has a baby. Jamie Lee Ross falls out with his party and the serious fraud office becomes really interested in campaign funding. The abortion laws are reformed. In March last year, there was the Christchurch Moss terror shootings and the gun law reforms that followed. There's the explosion of Whakari, White Island. And then we get to 2020. So... When the year starts, Ardern is hanging in there as a popular Prime Minister and Simon Bridges is looking comfortable as leader of the opposition and it seems like the September election is going to be totally up for grabs and then... Yeah, COVID-19. 
Yeah, if you want a bunch of detail on that, there are 52 episodes of a strangely familiar podcast called Coronavirus NZ that you can go back and listen to. But basically, politically speaking, the scale of the pandemic overwhelmed everything else in New Zealand's political agenda. Even Parliament was suspended for a bit. Instead, there was an oversight committee led by the leader of the opposition, Simon Bridges. Hey, Eugene, Simon Bridges isn't the leader of the opposition. No, that's right, but stick with me. Bridges' poll numbers went south, there was a coup, and National replaced him with Todd Muller. Eugene, Todd Muller isn't the leader of the opposition. Indeed. His poll numbers actually did okay, but after a series of scandals, he threw in the towel, and standing there waiting to pick it up was... Wait, do people pick up throwing in towels? It seems a bit gross and sweaty. Yeah, actually, no, they don't. Not in boxing. But where I'm trying to get to is that National picked a new leader, and it's Judith Collins. Of course... We skipped over a bit where an extraordinary number of MPs quit in disgrace, were fired in disgrace, got demoted in disgrace, or just walked away. But all that's old news. What matters now is that we lucky New Zealanders, in 45 days, or a little bit less if you do it by mail, get the chance to vote in a whole new bunch of MPs. (sighs) I'm exhausted, and I had no idea that the New Zealand election of 2020 could trace its origins all the way back to the beginning of time. Boom. So... That's the bit about the politicians. What about the really important people? Us, the voters, the ones who get our say on September 19. The first thing is to make sure you're enrolled to vote. We just got a press release actually from the Electoral Commission. They're the independent agency which is in charge of running the elections and the referendums. Referenda. Making sure the law is being followed. And Anyway, they were telling us that around 500,000 eligible New Zealanders still haven't enrolled. And they're encouraging people to enrol before August 16, that's 12 days away, because that makes it a whole lot easier. For starters, it means you'll get sent an easy vote card. And that card makes voting go really smoothly when you get to the polling booth. It's like they're expecting you when you go there and you can just get to the ballot box to quickly execute your democratic right and tick, tick. One tick for your party vote, the other for who you want to be your local MP. And actually, two more ticks after that, because there are a couple of referenda. Referendums. The weed one and the euthanasia one. That's right. Look, you can still enrol later than the 16th, right up until the election day itself, in fact. But then you'll be casting a special vote, and that's just a bit more complicated. So just enrol by August 16th, if you haven't already. Here's a fine print. To be eligible to enrol, you may have to be 18 or over, a New Zealand citizen or permanent resident, have lived continuously in New Zealand for 12 months or more at some time in your life. I must say, I've never heard of that third criteria. You have to have lived here for 12 months or more at some point in your life. I guess that rules out citizens who live overseas, like uh, Peter Thiel, maybe? Anyway, it's all very well reading from a press release, but shouldn't we interview someone who's really expert in this voting stuff? Sure. Who have you got in mind? Well, it's obvious, really. Always popping up on the tally and in the ads, dishing out advice. Mm, the Briscoe's lady? No. Orange guy. He's in all the Electoral Commission ads. Seems to have a new dog this time around, actually. Let's see if we can get him on the show to fill us in. What's his name? I'll get looking in the white pages. That is his name. Orange guy. All right. Well, sure. Why don't you try to see if you can track down this uh, Mr. O guy? How hard can it be? Exactly. I'll give it a crack. Okay, election playlist time. This will be an occasional series where we feature important musical moments from campaigns past or with a political twist. Let's start with a banger. So what you're listening to there is Big Norm, which was a song by Ebony from 1974, and it was an homage to Norman Kirk, who became Labour Prime Minister in 1972 and died in office in August 
Side note, the last telegram Kirk sent before his death was to the band Ebony to congratulate him on winning an award for Group of the Year. Right, on with the show. Again, this is show number one, so we thought we'd start with the basics. What even are elections? What are we measuring? Is it just a popularity contest? Or are voters playing three-dimensional chess as they weigh all their options? Grant Duncan, Associate Professor of Political Theory and Public Policy at Massey University, is someone who's interested in those things too. This year, he and his colleagues teamed up with Stuff to ask New Zealanders about how they view government performance and what policies they value. 75,000 people or so responded. So we thought we'd ask him what he found out. Welcome, Grant. Oh, thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Hey, look, we just wanted to start with a very broad question. So setting aside the particulars of this election in New Zealand in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic, big picture, what is it that elections are actually measuring? It's a really good question to put it in terms of measurement. And if we think of it as a poll, it is like a, a measurement, isn't it, of the preferences of the public for their choices of representation. So in MMP, we have two kinds of representation. We have our local member of parliament, and of course, we choose our preferred political party. So what we're measuring then is preference in terms of representation in the House of Representatives. Right. Again, very broad strokes. But what are the things that influence people's choices in an election, and, and how do people weigh them up? You really have to look into people's minds here, but a few minutes' conversation with the average voter will get you all sorts of different reactions. Some people see themselves as voting for a prime minister, which technically they're not actually doing. We vote for our local candidate and for our preferred political party. The parties themselves choose who will lead them, and of course it is possible to have a change of prime minister midterm without an election. So, And changes of opposition leaders apparently as well, it seems. <laughs> Yes, that's right. You can do that too, as we've found. Um, but however, that's what people believe they're doing, or they might believe that they're voting for their preferred government. You know, say they want, say, a Labour Green government or a National Act government, and of course that influences their choice. Or sometimes actually people are making a protest vote or just a downright silly vote. You know, they vote for one of those tiny little minnows or... They vote for, say, uh, New Zealand First on the basis of, you know, making a stand, making a protest. Uh, so there's all sorts of different motives behind people's votes. And, uh, you know, we can't second guess them or demand that people look at it in a particular way because that's just the nature of democracy. Yeah, um, we were thinking about this earlier. We're thinking, you know, people vote on policies, but they also vote on personalities. They might vote on a policy which they don't think is good as the other one, but they think it's the people who can do it can actually do it. So you're voting on trust. You're balancing all these things when you're making a vote, I guess, aren't you? But there's that line that the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, has meant to have said when asked by a journalist, you know, what can push a government off track? And he supposedly said, events, dear boy, events. So this year, we've had plenty of events. Huh? So what would you say COVID has done to change the priorities of voters as the election gets closer? Oh, well, the effect of COVID-19 on uh, the election is proving already to be profound. Essentially, we were facing an existential threat of a kind, weren't we? If we look at the, the mortality rates and the economic disruption in other countries, uh, it certainly impacted New Zealand, but uh, we've gotten through reasonably well. And what tends to happen 
in situations where people feel that their security is directly under threat. It often engenders greater trust in the sitting government. This is not an unusual phenomenon that can, of course, drop just as quickly as it rises. But yes, there's no doubt that an unexpected event this year has had a huge effect on opinion polling, and that will no doubt also be manifested on September the 19th. So if we can turn to the the survey that you've been part of. So Massey University and stuff came together to survey New Zealanders ahead of the election, and 75,000 people had responded. First of all, what, what were you trying to find out? Lots of things, really. If I go back to the 2017 survey, at that time there was a big deal about disruptive populist politics and anti-immigration politics and so forth coming from around the world. And to some extent that 2017 survey was a fishing exercise to see if there were similar kinds of attitudes here. We did find such attitudes, um, some actually frankly quite unpleasant ones, as you can probably imagine. And it's certainly there, but it didn't. those sorts of politics didn't become big in our election campaign in 2017. What we did pick up was a mood for change, and that became you know, strongly manifested, of course, when Jacinda took over as leader of the Labour Party right in the middle of the running of our second round of that 2017 set of surveys. So this time, of course, everything had changed. Obviously, we had to ask people about what's the impact of covid on your life, on you personally, because this is going to affect also how people are going to vote. Do they have confidence in the sitting government to steer us through this major, major crisis? So we were looking at those sorts of things, but also it's an opportunity to find out about the mood of the nation. So I reposed some of the questions that had been posed in 2017. And although neither poll is representative and one has to be very cautious about not you know, taking the numbers too literally, interestingly, what I found was that people seem to be less discontented than in 2017 and more trustful of politicians in general, mm-hmm. and particularly for those who are uh, fans of Jacinda Ardern. After such disruption, not as much discontent as we uh, were picking up in 2017. Just before we talk about it anymore, we, we should pick up on that point that there's this thing that keeps getting dropped into every story about this survey data reminding us that it's not a scientific poll. Can you just explain what that means and why, even though that is the case, there's things that we can take notice of with this survey? Yeah, let me be clear that it's a reader-initiated poll. In other words, readers choose to be recruited into it voluntarily and anonymously. What it's resulted in is, is a sample that's rather biased. And we are fully aware of that, uh, and we just take that into account. But we can't just take raw figures from this survey and claim that they're representative. However, what I found last time, and I'm finding again, is that our results on the Stuff Massey survey are not out of line altogether with opinion polls that are using probability sampling, representative samples, And so I'm fairly confident that we have a good cross-section of the community. Uh, We can drill down to look at minority groups because we have asked about people's demographics. We we can look at those more uh, fine-grained details. As journalists, we don't want to get too high and mighty about this. We sometimes go out and ask five people in the street what they think about something and turn that into a news story. So 75,000 people sounds like a pretty <laughs> impressive sampling, even if there are those biases that you've got to yeah. readjust for. Now, one of the things you measured, I guess, even though it wasn't directly in the questions, was polarisation and the way 
political affiliations or leanings can change people's actual perceptions of the world. Explain that a bit for us. You know, what is polarisation, I guess, and, and, and how does it work? One of the interesting things we found last time when we asked people about natural disasters showed this polarisation already. Now, a natural disaster or a pandemic like COVID is an objective event. <laughs> no one can dispute that it, that it happens. The facts are right there. The other thing is that's indisputable is that there, is, there must be a significant intervention by the state. But what we find with these things is that people's assessment of how well the government has handled a natural disaster or a pandemic in this case is strongly skewed by their party affiliation. When we ask people about how good a job medical professionals had done in controlling the spread of COVID-19, the majority of National Party supporters, 68.6%, were prepared to agree that they'd done a good job. However, when you ask, is the present government taking the right approach to dealing with the economic impact of COVID-19, national supporters agree only uh, at a rate of 9.9%. Of course, with Labour supporters, it's completely different. 91% of them agree. So already we have a very powerful divergence or polarisation of opinion between national and Labour supporters. When it came to people's judgment of how well medical professionals had done, what was the difference between national voters and Labour voters? In terms of people who agreed that medical professionals have done a good job of controlling the spread of COVID-19, 68.6% of national supporters and 95.9% of Labour supporters agreed. Generally, what you find in surveys of, of trust and in institutions is that People put medical professionals very high in terms of their uh, trust, whereas politicians tend to be, uh, and journalists, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> uh, tend to be down the bottom of the of the league table when it comes to public trust. Stuff has published a number of stories about the results, but I know that you're still crunching the numbers on, on some of them, and we're hoping you could talk us through some of the results that are emerging. And one of them, and this is a bit of self-interest here, was about media. It asked whether people's main source of news was mainstream media, social media, or word of mouth. What did you find out? Uh, yeah, this was a really interesting result that's been elaborated on by my colleague, Prof. James Liu in psychology. Uh, he found that uh, people who reported that their main source of news was word of mouth in particular, but also to some extent social media, were more likely to agree with conspiracy theories about the origin of COVID-19, uh, particularly the conspiracy theory that it basically is an invention of one of the great powers to try and stoke up conflict in the world. Most New Zealanders, we're happy to say, agree that it had na a natural source. Now, there's a difficult thing. We can't say that somehow social media and uh, people who just rely on word of mouth are somehow to blame because they're not going to more authoritative sources, mainstream media. It may be that these are people who are already prone to believing conspiracy theories anyway, and you know they don't go to mainstream media sources. But it does seem that people who pay more attention to mainstream media are less likely to believe that particular set of conspiracy theories about COVID-19. In the next round, we're going to ask about vaccinations, I think, if we can. Oh, that'll be interesting. One question was on a surprisingly simple thing. You asked whether people felt safe walking around their neighbourhood. So why did you ask that question specifically? And, and what did the results tell you? I was just curious to know really about people's sense of security. 
And at the moment, with a lot of what's going on in the world, it heightens the sense of insecurity. And people who feel insecure can go two ways. They can either place their trust in the incumbent government, or if they feel that the incumbent government isn't properly addressing the causes of their sense of insecurity, then, of course, they might go uh, and vote for an alternative government. So we ask people about their sense of security, particularly the ability of the New Zealand police to protect our communities. So we basically said, OK, do you see the police as protecting your community? How effective are they, good, moderate or poor? And I guess the constabulary would be reasonably happy to hear that 46, 47, depending on whether you're male or female, rated them as good, and uh, only a small minority between 7 and 11% were rating them poorly, except if you're gender diverse. 28.9% of people who ticked gender diverse said that the ability of the police to protect their communities is poor. It's slightly different, though, and this is kind of interesting, when you go to look at how do you feel when you're walking around your neighbourhood, then things change slightly because one of the interesting findings here is that when you break it down by party political support, you find that the ACT Party supporters are the most likely to rate the New Zealand police's ability as poor, 26%. But when you go to the question that asks them, well, how do you feel when you walk around your neighbourhood, they're just as likely as any other people to say safe and sound. So a vast majority of New Zealanders, uh, three quarters or more, are saying, I feel safe and sound when I walk around my neighbourhood. But for some reason, ACT Party members uh, rate the ability of the New Zealand police to protect our communities as poor. Does that question there, or those answers there, illustrate exactly the point about polarisation? Well, yes, again, you see, if, if you're an ACT Party supporter, you're very sort of sceptical about governments generally and about the state generally, and so you're more likely, I think, to give any agency of the state a negative rating, just because ACT Party supporters don't like governments, they want less of it, mm. and that's part of the whole, uh, I guess, mm. libertarian ideology, but it may not necessarily, as I say, one's political opinions may not necessarily match up with actual facts and actual experience. Our political ideologies sometimes are out of touch with reality sometimes, I and mean, that's the nature of ideology, I have to say. Mm. One more uh, specific question that we wondered if you could have a look at it for us, which was, you know, finally, because like everyone else in the world, we've got an unhealthy obsession with the President of the United States right now. And you asked whether people were hoping for a Trump win or loss. How did that turn out? Well, that's really interesting because support or not for Donald Trump isn't, from my point of view, just about Donald Trump. It tells you something about New Zealanders. And in New Zealand, the support is extremely low. It's down to 11% across the board who hope he wins. So 78% said, I hope he loses, and 11% weren't sure. Unsurprisingly, when you start to break that down into party political preference, you start to get a slightly different point of view. So supporters of more conservative parties are more likely to hope that Donald Trump wins. So 19.5% of national supporters, 32.4% of ACT supporters, and 69% of new conservative supporters say that they hope Donald Trump wins. But as I said in my column the other day, uh, overall, with 11% support across the board, I regard 
Donald Trump has a toxic brand in this country and the controversy about the MAGA hat with uh, Tom Muller, I think, is illustrative of that. So there's a second round of the survey happening in late August. Broadly speaking, what are you going to be asking then? Oh, well, one of the really interesting questions or responses that we got to a question in the first round was roughly 60% of people saying that they'd like to see COVID-19 and the recession result in a significant revision or, or, or reform of our economic system. And we went, oh, gosh, didn't expect that. So there will be a series of questions in the second round, testing people's approval or disapproval of different kinds of reforms. And we're trying to make it reasonably balanced, you know, a kind of left-wing reform and a right-wing reform and, and so on, so that people can basically uh, give us a thumbs up or thumbs down to uh, specific kinds of economic reforms that they might be a part of that, yeah. Sure. So based on what the survey says, can you make any predictions? No, I can't and I won't. One is always tempted to turn this kind of thing into predictions. And people are always looking to people like me for predictions. And I always say I don't do predictions. I don't have a crystal ball. And there's been a lot of controversy recently about political polls, uh, which have been quite variable lately. So what does this mean for the election? I don't know. What I do know is that public opinion is polarised and variable and the current pandemic and the economic recession have really had an impact on change in public opinion. There's apparently been a shift to the incumbent government, but look out, that could change just as quickly as it happened. Um, So I I think all bets are off. Certainly last time I was proven wrong because of the advent of the Jacinda effect. Jacinda became leader in the middle of one of our rounds. We saw the Labour supporters pouring into the, the survey because they were motivated by their new leader. A similar thing happened with Judith Collins. We're simply testing the mood of the nation. And I guess overall, yeah, I wouldn't like to translate this into some kind of prediction about September 19. Well, that's a really fascinating survey and we look forward to seeing the next round too and who knows what will happen between now and then. So thanks very much for joining us, Associate Professor Grant Duncan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's the Tick Tick podcast for Tuesday, August the 4th. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Grant Duncan, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson, John Hardefeld and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Thursday at 0500. Matewa.